1989 in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, a man went to a flea market. He wasn't looking for anything in particular. You can find various things for a really cheap price. And he came across a painting of a country landscape. And the painting didn't impress him, but he liked the frame that the painting was in. So he paid $4 for the painting. He took it home and he was trying to separate the painting from the frame and it kind of crumbled. But it revealed what was hidden in the painting, which was an old parchment. And he took the parchment to an antiquities expert and it was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And he sold it at auction for $2.4 million. And he bought it for $4 and he sold the Declaration of Independence that was in it for $2.4 million. And when you hear of a story like that, you know, and this is the kind of thing that probably inspired that, uh, was it the Roadshow Antiquities, or where, where people bring something that they have, some vase or something, and see maybe it's this priceless treasure. And it's kind of neat when they find something it's, you know, that's really valuable. But um, when you hear a story like that, you can, you can think one of two things, or maybe both of them at the same time. You think, what a lucky guy. I mean, to, to get this thing you thought was basically worthless, and to be surprised at how valuable it is, how fortunate for him, right? But you could also think about what, is the, what about the person who had that, <laughs> either on their wall or in their family for, for decades and didn't realize that they had this priceless treasure. They, they just didn't know the supreme value of what they had. And I feel that that could describe how many Catholics view the Mass what we're doing right now. And I say that Catholics don't appreciate what they have. Um, first, of, first, knowing that it is something of supreme value, and I'm going to talk about why that is in a moment, but, but the fact that Catholics don't appreciate it much can be shown by, by the attendance, attendance rate at Mass. So in, in 2022, there was a survey, and of people who identified as Catholics, only 17% went to Mass weekly. There's more that would go to Mass occasionally, but only 17% went to Mass weekly. And it's, it's sad because that number 10 years ago was about twice that. It was, I think, 35%. And I think so a lot of people don't appreciate it. Even, even some of us who go to Mass every week, maybe we don't really look forward to it. Maybe we might say it's, it's boring or not here, of course, right? But um, so there's all kinds of and I'm hoping to do more teaching on the Mass over the summer and maybe even we'll do a Mass that has some instruction in it so that we can understand more of what we're doing and by understanding, appreciate. But there's really one fundamental reason um, why we go to Mass and um, it's because Jesus is here. And you might say, well, yet, Father, Jesus is everywhere, right? Yes, but Jesus is here in a unique way, in an incomparable way to his presence always and everywhere, Okay. And our gospel today is teaching us that precisely. It may not be obvious to you because it's the story of Jesus appearing right after he's risen from the dead to these two people walking to a town called Emmaus. But if we listen to the story carefully, we'll see exactly what Jesus is teaching us about the Mass. So, um, this is uh, a wonderful story that's recorded by Luke and it's taking place on that Sunday afternoon, that first Easter Sunday. 
And there's a man named Cleopas and some other disciple. We don't know their name. And they are conversing about all that just happened. Right? Um, the arrest of Jesus, his torture, his trials, his, his crucifixion, as well as some strange things that they heard about that morning. So women had come to the tomb and they found the tomb empty and they, saw, they said they saw angels. And the disciples are heartbroken. They're devastated. So they had been hoping that Jesus was going to be the Messiah that had been promised, this great King of Israel. And all their hopes, all their dreams, all how they thought the future was going to fall was just completely destroyed. And as they're walking, a stranger goes up alongside them. And Luke tells us the stranger is Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And we don't exactly understand why. It says their eyes were prevented from seeing him. So he walks up alongside them and he says, hey guys, what are you talking about? And to understand you know, their, their surprise, their feeling, it would be like, it would be like on September 12, 2001. You know, people are of course, talking about what happened the day before. Everyone was talking about that. And if someone walked up to you and said, hey, what, what's going on? What happened? You'd say, what, have you been living under a rock? <laughs> you know? And then Jesus says, well, no, I don't know about this. Um, uh, why don't you tell me about it? So it's beautiful because he gives them a chance to um, articulate what exactly it is, how they understand it, and kind of how they feel about it. And then he says, you know, how foolish and slow of heart you are to believe that everything that happened was precisely as God had planned. And God has dropped these clues for centuries through the writings of Moses and the prophets. And so Jerusalem to Emmaus is seven miles. It's about, I think it takes about two and a half hours to walk. So during that time, Jesus is explaining to them all these clues. Now, Luke doesn't tell us all the details, but the rest of the New Testament gives us a good idea. And what I mean is this, what we see is, for example, in the first reading, Peter has this, this boldness and this great wisdom, and he understands the Old Testament and the hidden clues that God put there. So, for example, he's quoting one of the Psalms. When David says to God, you will not allow your Holy One to suffer corruption. Okay, and Peter is saying, well, we know David is dead and his body is totally corrupt. All are left are some bones, right? So David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about one of his descendants, the Messiah. For Jesus, though he died, our, his body was not allowed to decompose. His body did not see corruption. There are, by some counts, 600 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. And so we see... In the preaching of the early church, they've been enlightened and they understand these connections, whether it was through what Jesus was teaching them in those 40 days after his resurrection or whether it was the Holy Spirit enlightening them. So they're walking, and as they're walking and he's telling them about this, they are not bored. <laughs> in fact, they're remarking, our hearts are burning with us, and they get to their destination and it seems as if Jesus is going to walk on and they don't want him to leave. Stay with us. It's getting late. Let's sit down and have a meal together. And then the way that Luke describes the beginning of that meal is very important. He describes Jesus doing something with bread. He describes Jesus doing four things with bread. There's four verbs. Jesus takes, blesses, 
breaks and gives. Now Luke describes Jesus doing those same four things with bread earlier in his gospel. Anyone care to guess when? Last Supper, right? What does Jesus do? He sits down with the disciples. And we know the Last Supper is when Jesus is instituting the Mass. This is when he says, do this in memory of me. Because of that, the church has gathered ever since then, every Sunday, to do this in memory of him. Now, if, I'll see if you guys even know, there's actually a second occasion earlier in Luke's Gospel where Jesus does those four things with bread. Does anyone want to guess that? Loaves and fishes, excellent. Loaves and fishes. And by the way, the loaves and fishes, remember the crowd was hungry, there's a few loaves and fishes. Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, gives, and all of a sudden there's enough food to feed everyone and even leftovers, right? That's actually a Eucharistic miracle. So that is pointing forward towards the Eucharist, the institution of the Last Supper. And then what Jesus is doing with those disciples in Emmaus is pointing back to that. It's the same reality. And what they refer to, they say that we recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So if you look at the New Testament, they don't call the Mass the Mass. There's all different names it can be called. They call it the breaking of the bread. That is the shorthand for the Mass. And the basic structure of the Mass is presented to us in the story of Emmaus. There's two parts to the Mass, two big parts and a lot of little parts in those two parts. The first part is liturgy of the word. That's what we're doing now. Liturgy means public worship or official worship. Right? The first part, we have the readings. You know, and we have... Um, our response in the Psalms, which is also the word of God. And then, and then someone tries humbly to open those up for you a little bit, right? In the homily, that's the first half. And then we have the second half, right? Begins when the, when the gifts are brought forward, which is the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so we see that's what's happening in Emmaus. First, the scripture is opened up for them, and then the bread is broken. And then Jesus vanishes, by the way. But they're not sad. They've encountered him, and, and their eyes were open to recognize him. And they changed the direction of their lives completely. They left Jerusalem. They were leaving this place of disappointment. They were leaving the rest of the church, which was still there. But when they encountered the Lord in the breaking of the bread, they go back and they join them. And they go from being uh, discouraged, confused, to being energized. And their lives are full of purpose and of meaning. I mean, this is, this is so important. See, the Mass is the celebration of the great story. And our lives are part of the great story. And without really connecting with the great story, we're always going to be lost and confused. But when we do, our hearts burn within us, not only because we understand God's great plan as regards to Jesus, but we understand our part in that plan. Okay. And so, Jesus is saying, he says, because his appearances, by the way, after the resurrection are, are mysterious. He shows up, he disappears, people see him but don't recognize him, right? And he eventually, in, after 40 days, he's, his obvious physical appearance, he no longer appears that way, right? Except in maybe mystical visions. So he goes up to, into heaven. So what he's telling the disciples, he's telling the church, he's telling you and me, from now on, if you want to find me, you're going to find me in the Mass. As I will be there for you. We say he's present in four ways in the Mass. First, in the gathered assembly, in you. Because he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. 
Secondly, he's present in the priest presiding, who, um, who says the words that he says at the Last Supper, who offers the sacrifice, his sacrifice as priest. Thirdly, he's present in the scriptures that are proclaimed. And so that whoever it is that's reading them, it's really Christ who is speaking to us. And finally, and most importantly, he's present to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine in the Eucharist. And so the question is, this is what Jesus is telling us, but why why doesn't it affect us like it affected those disciples? Why do our hearts not burn within us when he speaks to us? Why Why don't we recognize him in the breaking of the bread? Why isn't it changing the direction of our lives? For some of us it does, and it has, and it continues to do so. But oftentimes I think... And we may look and say, well, maybe there's some fault in the way the Mass is, you know, again, not here, you'd never say that, right? And the servers or the music or the parking lot, whatever it is, right? That, um, that we're focusing on, or maybe the church should just change the whole thing, make it more entertaining. I don't know, maybe we should all pull out our phones and have some back and forth on the, I don't know. That's what people might think, but that's, that's not where the fault lies. Um, it's something in us. And we need to ask God to renew, renew in us a spiritual sense. If you go your whole week and you're not really praying, you're going to have a hard time hearing God's voice when you come to Mass. Okay? So we've got to connect with Him every day. We've got to have some quiet in our lives every day. I think especially now, it's so hard because we are hyper-stimulated. Speaking of phones, you know, this constant stimulation and you, you know all of this is designed to addict us, designed to get us because we become numb to certain levels of stimulation, so it has to be heightened and heightened, right? So if we're like that, if our senses are like that, then how can we, how can we, be, how can we have that sense within us, and that quiet part in our souls that's perceiving the voice of God? I think that's a big part of the problem. So we want to dispose ourselves, um, develop that spiritual sense, so that when Christ is speaking, we can hear his voice. That, that when Christ is revealing himself, that we can see him. I think this whole thing about them not seeing him is actually, he's saying, look, you're not going to see me this obvious way through your physical eyes. You're going to see signs. You're not going to hear me so much with, with the words, but you're going to hear my words proclaimed. You're going to perceive me through faith. That's how you're going to perceive me. And I think that's what's going on. And so we need to ask the Lord to increase our faith, our ability, our ability to perceive his presence. So we don't want to be like that very unfortunate man who sold a priceless treasure for four bucks, not knowing what he had. Instead, we want to be like those disciples on the road to Emmaus who recognized him in the breaking of the bread.